Our Bibles now to Philippians chapter 4. Oh, and on Wednesday nights, we have our time here as we have been going, as we're going through the Bible, and we're in the book of Proverbs, and you're invited to come out for that. Junior high and high school has just a great opportunity for their group on Wednesday nights as well, so especially if you have kids that age, bring them out on Wednesdays, join us in our study with the, um, with the uh, adults going through the book of Proverbs. Also, a college and career group uh, meets tonight at 7 o'clock back in the fellowship hall, and during third service, the high school girls' discipleship group meets out in the bus. Philippians chapter 4, we've been studying, Paul has been sharing with us the secret of a joy-filled life, how to, how to rejoice even when life isn't going the way you want it to. Certainly for him, he would have chosen different circumstances for himself. He was in jail at the time he wrote this, and he had been through a r- really rough life. And yet, despite all that, Paul was a guy who lived full of joy. He lived in a, in a way that he lived like he didn't have regrets. And so this book, he's sharing that as we finished up chapter three last week, we saw how Paul was stating that our citizenship is in heaven. The key to dealing with life down here is to realize that this isn't all there is, that truly we're members of heaven, that that we're living for eternity. He had earlier said he counted everything as loss compared to knowing Jesus Christ and hearing that upward call of God that's in Christ Jesus. Now, as we come to chapter four, Paul starts to address a situation that was going on there in the Philippian church where there were a couple of ladies who weren't getting along very well. Seems kind of funny that when you're talking about all of these lofty concepts, then all of a sudden you bring it down to, by the way, Euodia and Syntyche, you guys need to get it together. You've been having problems. How embarrassing if you're Euodia or Syntyche that here's this letter from Paul and he goes, oh, Paul mentions you in the letter. Oh, great. And I hope it's he, he's saying, Euodia, you're right. Syntyche's wrong. <laughs> but instead, he addresses it from a ministry standpoint. Now, it's so important in the body of Christ that we get along with each other. And yet, other people are the primary reasons why we are robbed of our joy so often why life isn't smooth. We're created to work together. Paul established that very well in the first couple chapters of Philippians. And yet usually when things are going wrong in life, it's because our relationships with others aren't what they could be or should be. When they talk to missionaries who have come home from the mission field earlier than they had planned, Most of the time, it's not because they got sick of the bugs or their physical health isn't well, they can't stand the creepy food or, you know, they're homesick or whatever. Most of the time when missionaries fail, it's because they can't get along with other missionaries. And that's kind of the way it is for so many of us in life. If you find out why the joy is missing, and of course, the joy of the Lord is your strength. If you don't have joy, you don't have anything. But finding out what the problem is so often focuses in on, I can't get along with other people. So Paul here is addressing this, but he does it in a way that's really informative for us because we have the obligation to not only get along with others, but also to help 
other people get along with each other, whether it's among our friends, whether it's in our family, whether it's in the church or in any other groups of people. And here Paul sets such an amazing example as in verse 1, he lays the foundation for what he is about to say. And then in verses 2 and 3, he deals specifically with the issues that are involved. Beginning with verse 1, Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, therefore, on the basis of what he's been telling them, therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. That first verse is interesting. Paul's just showering them with a, a glorious picture of who they are and of how loved they are. Notice he starts it out by saying, therefore my beloved, and he ends the verse by saying they're beloved as well. And that's the first thing that Paul wanted to make it very clear to them. You are loved. It, basically, God loves you and I love you. You can't expect to patch things up with someone that you're at odds with until they understand that you love them. You can't expect to help encourage anyone to experience life the way God has for them if they doubt that they are loved, that they have that someone's looking out for their interests. Sad to say, although we are all loved and, and we can say, hey, you need to know that you're loved because God gave his son Jesus to die for you. How much more love could there be? Herein, this is how we know love, Paul told the Romans. You know, that he would give himself. God showed his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's an important thing for all of us to understand. But you know what? We also need people who make us feel like we're appreciated and loved. We need people to show that love. And the truth is, if you expect to help others and they don't know that you love them, you're not going to do them much good. It doesn't even matter how much you do love them. If they aren't convinced of the love, it's not going to work. It's why in over in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, as Paul talked about ministry and spiritual gifts and how the body works together, everyone fulfilling their role and playing their part. In the middle of that passage is chapter 13, that great passage on love, where he defines love and describes it. But before doing that, he said, you need to understand this. No matter what else you do, if the love isn't there, it means nothing. He said, you know, you guys are proud of speaking in tongues, but he said, if you speak with tongues of men and angels and you don't have love, it's just a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. If you have all faith and you can remove mountains, or if you give your body to be burned, to give everything you have for the poor, and you do it without love, it doesn't mean anything. It's completely empty and void of all significance. And this, if we want to be used by God to serve others and to be a part of the body of Christ, if we want to minister to our own families and our own friends in a way that will bring joy into their lives, it has to be 
in the context of love. Because until, the, the reason we rebel in life is because we don't feel appreciated and we don't feel loved and we don't feel special. And God wants us to feel that way. But if you expect to have influence without sharing love, you're fooling yourself. It will not work. And again, it's not enough. If I go and chew you out and I'm mean to you, and deep inside I really love you, but you can't tell I love you, it doesn't work. If I'm up here every Sunday and I'm pounding away at you and, and telling you all the things that you're wrong about, and hey, that'd be easy. But if somehow in listening to me saying that, you don't realize that I really am sharing it out of a heart of compassion and love, it's not going to do you any good. And so Paul opens it up by saying, you guys are beloved. I want you to know I really care about you and God really loves you and cares about you. So if there's any part of you that's holding back from joy because you feel like you're not loved or appreciated, you feel like somebody doesn't care about you, you need to start there. And if we expect to influence other people's lives and bring joy into their lives, we have to start there too. So if you're at odds with someone, you haven't been, they're not sure that you love them or they think for sure you don't love them, that's what you have to work on. I used to often tell the teachers at the school over at Calvary, I said, you know, you have the chance to teach kids a whole lot of things and a lot of valuable and important lessons that you can share with them. But if they don't absolutely know that you love them, the rest of that stuff doesn't matter at all. It doesn't amount to a hill of beans because that's the central message. That's who God is. When, when you say God is, he is love. And so if we can't communicate that love, doesn't matter how much it's deep down inside of us. We have to find the language of love where we can come across and let people understand that. And Paul does that here. It's how he starts out. And then he says, not only my beloved, but also my longed for brethren. That word longed for, Paul uses a lot, usually in the context of, I miss you and I can't wait to see you again. Paul traveled a lot, and on his journeys, he, would, he had at least three major missionary journeys, and he would know people in each of these areas as he was moving through and coming from one town, one church to the next, and often he expressed, I can't wait to see you. You are longed for. Now, how many people do you think are really anxious to see you when they're away from you? If you go, not many then you know how people can often feel. Now, how many people are you looking forward to seeing? When you come to church on Sunday or on Wednesday or any other time, are there people that you're going, man, I can't wait to see these people? Or is it like, boy, does a donut sound good right now? <laughs> you know? And see, Paul says, you guys, I miss you. I really want to be with you. And he makes them feel appreciated, not just love, but actually, you know, and so often we say things like, oh, I love you, I just don't like you right now. It can't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You're just changing the definition of love. Just like the Bible commands us, and we'll see next week as he talks about rejoicing in the Lord, and so often we can go, oh, yeah, I have the joy of the Lord. It just doesn't work its way into a smile on my face. 
you can't tell. It's, I have the joy, 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 joy way down in my heart. <laughs> it's buried in there somewhere. We define the word to accommodate our own frail condition. And so also, people can tell if you're glad to see them. Now, there's two sides to this. Are they anxious for you to get home in the evening? Maybe if they aren't, it's their problem. Maybe it's your problem. But we should live our lives in such a way that when we are away from someone, we appreciate them. And a part of how that works is, as you know you're going to see someone, start thinking about them in a positive way. Maybe even make preparations, call ahead of time, or you know, perhaps think of bringing a gift, or when you see someone, think of something really good that you can tell them right off the bat. See, sometimes we don't long for each other because so often what we look forward to is to have someone to gripe at. And so when we come home, it's like, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. You won't believe what I had to deal with today. I can't hardly... You know what? Most people aren't just waiting with bated breath to hear what's wrong with your life today. It's so important for us to lay the foundation to where... And, and I'd suggest to you that if you would plan ahead and prepare ways for it to be a nice surprise when people who care about you will see you, they'll be more anxious to see you. They won't go out of their way to avoid you. But Paul said, you guys, you are loved. God loves you and I love you. But not only that, I love to see you. I can't wait. When I'm away from you, there's something missing. We so often only appreciate people when they're gone. There's nothing that gets the attention of someone like their spouse leaving them. Hey, wait, what happened? But if we would learn to treasure each other's presence before it gets to that point, it would never get to that point. That wouldn't happen. Do you communicate? Do I communicate to people? It's really good to see you. We can say that, hey, great to see you. But is it really? Does that come across? Because that lays the groundwork again. Making someone feel loved and appreciated opens the door for us to make a difference in their lives, to, to reach out and to help them to experience the life that God has for us. He says, you're longed for, and then he calls them brothers. He says, we're family. One of the reasons why I love you, one of the reasons why I love to see you, I look forward to that, is because you're family. And when our family is away, it just doesn't feel right. When someone's gone for a while, my kids right now are up in, in uh, Canada snowboarding. And, I mean, just driving, I wasn't real positive about having to get up at 3 in the morning to take them to LAX. But as soon as I'm driving home from the airport, I'm missing them already. I'm thinking, my kids are going to be gone for a week. That's, and okay, some of the thought was, wow, the kids are gone for a week. But <laughs> so we're going to celebrate by fumigating our house this week. So, but it has nothing to do with the kids. But <laughs> the house just doesn't feel quite right when the kids aren't there. It's just different, different dynamics. Something's missing. We as God's people are family. This is the center of who we are. Many of you know there are people, your brothers and sisters in the Lord, who you are much closer to than even your biological relatives. 
because you have that spiritual connection. It's a blessing when your family has a spiritual connection and you also have a biological connection. That's nice, and biological families should appreciate each other. The word kind comes from the word kindred that means relative. That's the way it ought to be. But Paul is talking to people who aren't his relatives, but he says, we're family. I'm not going to dump on you. I'm not going to desert you. You can count on me being there. We are close. We're family. We're knit together. Again, laying this groundwork. And then he goes on to say, not only my longed-for brethren, but he says, you're my joy and you're my crown. Joy. He's been talking about joy. How can you enjoy life? How can you live above the circumstances and really have a good time in life and with people? And he says, you people are my joy. I, I'm happy when I think of you. You brighten my day when I see you or hear about you or my recollections of you. Are we those kinds of people that really our presence brings joy into people's lives? There are some people who can just brighten up a room by entering. There are other people who can brighten up a room just by leaving. <laughs> so what kind of people are we? Are we the type that just us being there makes it fun, makes it happy? Or do we have a way of throwing a wet blanket on? If anybody's having, having you know, a good time today, believe me, I can remind you of a lot of reasons that it's not so good. When someone tells me good news, oh, yeah, but it's not going to last. Did you hear about this? And did you see this on the news? And did you read this in the newspaper? Paul said, you people are my joy. I'm so happy with what God's done in your life. Now, remember, he's about to correct them, but he's making it clear still, you're joy to me. Wherever you are, wherever you're falling short, at the same time, I enjoy you. People can say they love you. People can say they're looking forward to seeing you. They miss you when they're gone. They can call you brother or sister. But you can see it on their face if they enjoy you, if they enjoy being around you, if they enjoy the past that you've had and the future that you look forward to, being citizens of heaven. The only way for someone to be your joy is if you're discovering what God is doing in their lives. And just to say, man, I love seeing what God is doing in your life. And that can be despite whatever else you see. I have several friends right now. We have people in our body who are dealing with um, sickness, and, and several of them with cancer. And when you sit there with them, and we had a prayer meeting here on Friday night, and a couple of people there who have cancer right now, and and it's like, you know what? I, normally, I don't want to hear about somebody being sick. It's just kind of depressing. But when you see people, like in these cases, who they're, God is doing such amazing things in their life that they're like, hey, the cancer's actually been a good thing for me. It's blessing me, and it's doing a good thing. Now, when we live life that way, and we see God's hand in everything, it helps us to go, I don't look at you and start to cry. I look at you and I rejoice because I see what God is doing. And Paul said, I want you, to get you guys to understand completely, you're my joy. If everything else is wrong and I know you're right with God, I'm happy. You mean that much to me. It ties in with his love. It goes with his joy. But he also says, you're my crown. 
That's like saying, you're my trophy. I, I see what God is doing in your life, and it makes me feel like I'm being congratulated because I know I had a part in what you were doing. You may not remember all that I did for you, but I look at you and I go, I'm so glad I had a part in your life. And I take that as, as a reward, that I get to see the fruit of what God is doing in your life. You're my crown. When the Bible talks about crowns in heaven and rewards in heaven, it's not something that I've ever really gotten so into. When I think about going to heaven, I think, man, it'll be awesome to be there with Jesus and be there with all the believers. But, you know, when it talks about crowns, I'm like, I'll be glad to be in heaven. I don't really want to have a big stack of crowns on my head, you know, walking around like the Burger King guy. It's just, and I think, who cares about crowns? You know, I have to wear hats today when I go out in the sun, but in heaven, I'm going to have a full head of hair, and for once, I'm going to let that hang down. I am not going to go places with hats on. But those crowns that, those crowns that the Bible talks about, I think, like Paul says here, what if those crowns are people that you had a little part of them getting there? Imagine getting to heaven and finding someone there who reminds you of the time when, you know, you were just loving to them and it made an impression on them and it got through and they say, you know, I never told you this when we were on the earth because I thought it would puff your head up. But honestly, watching you and how you lived your life is part of what God used for me to become a Christian, and you're one of the reasons why I'm here. Imagine your kids growing up and coming back, and there they are in heaven, and they say, you raising me? Sometimes you thought I didn't listen to you. Sometimes you thought I'd never make it, but I'm here partly because you were faithful. What else could be more valuable than that? What could be a better treasure in heaven than that? To me, when I think of treasures in heaven, laying up treasures in heaven, I have a theory that the treasures in heaven are the good memories and the people and the associations that we have here on the earth. I believe when we get to heaven, we won't remember anything bad that's ever happened, but I think we'll remember all the good things that happened, all the things that God has done, and that will be treasure. And Paul is saying to these people in Philippians, even though he's about to correct them, he said, you guys are my crown. You're the only reward I need. I look at you and I see you as a trophy that my life hasn't been wasted, that I poured myself out and I made a difference for you. Now, and then again calls them beloved after saying stand fast in the Lord. The idea of standing fast, we, we use the word fast mostly in terms of speed, but we do use a derivative word, fasten, that means to attach something. When he's saying to stand fast, he means be solid, be fastened to, be anchored in the Lord. Make your connection to be with him. And he says, that's what comes of this. And, and I'm telling you again, you're beloved, you're loved. Now, they should have known, as he was saying all these grandiose things about how great they are and how much he loves them and cares for them. They should have known that the other foot was going to drop. But what a beautiful way of correcting someone by first doing all of this. If you want to minister to others, if you want to counsel others or help them or be useful in their lives, if you want any crown and you want any joy in your life, 
you'll figure out how to do this in people's lives. Look around you and see people that you would like to influence. And then start out by saying, do they know how much I love them? Are they, are they certain of that? Do they know that I'm glad to see them? I long for them when I'm away from them. Do they know that you know they're my joy? They're my crown. They're my beloved. So once you get that taken care of, the rest of the ministry is easy. It's really hard to minister to people when you haven't got over that initial hurdle of them absolutely knowing that they're loved. Because for any of us, if we don't feel loved and treasured and appreciated, then we want to defend ourselves by backing into a corner and keeping everyone away, building walls that won't allow intimacy that God wants for us to have. So if you want to break through people's walls, this is how you do it. But now he goes on to say and personalizes it, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. These are two ladies who were there in Philippi. We don't really know anything about them. People have speculated different things. There were some early church writings that suggested that each of these women had a church that met in their home, as the church assemblies in those days would meet in people's homes. And it's the thought that perhaps each of these women hosted one of these smaller fellowships. And it could be, and sometimes there are these rivalries that come up between churches. It could be they were just both working together there in one church in Philippi. But Paul is saying, can't you guys get along? Isn't there a way for you to come together and to think together and to come across the, the fact that you value the same things, you all want the same deal? Can't we settle the differences that are between you. When he says, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche, it's an interesting word there for implore. It's not really the word that you usually use for beg or plead or something like that. Actually, later on, as he says, I urge you in verse 3, that's more of a word that means I'm asking you, I'm begging you. The word that's used here in verse 2 for implore is actually the Greek word parakaleo. It's a word that means to be called alongside. That word parakaleo, or when it's transliterated into English, it's paraclete. It, we often translate it comforter. The Holy Spirit is said to be a, a one who is called alongside to help, and we say comforter. Other times in the New Testament, this same word is translated as exhort. But here's the deal. What, what this kind of exhortation or this kind of encouragement or this kind of calling alongside, it's reaching out to someone and putting your arm around them and pulling them close into you, assuring them that they're secure in your love, but pulling them close so that you can get something done, you can encourage them in some way. So the picture here is he's saying, you know, Euodia and Syntyche, you both know I love you. You both know how much I care about you. I enjoy you both. Right now, you're not enjoying each other. So can I get you together? Can I pull you both alongside me and remind you, if you put some thought to this, if you'll get together and talk this out and achieve and accomplish a unity, find out what you agree on and live with that rather than being constantly focusing on those areas in which you disagree. He goes, 
Let me pull you ladies together. This is important. Again, it's so important that Jesus talked about unity all the time. In John 17, praying that they would be one so that the world would know that Jesus came from the Father. You know, it's that important. And in fact, it is. There are a whole lot of people who haven't accepted Jesus Christ because most of the Christians that they know hate the other Christians that they know. We can't wait to make a statement against other churches and other groups. And we say, well, we are this way and they are that way. And we make these distinctions. And Jesus goes, how are people supposed to know that you're all united in me at the foot of the cross if you're constantly arguing with each other and having these problems? But the same thing goes for if it happens within our body, the same thing goes if it happens within our families. Why should people be drawn to the belief that becoming a Christian can enrich your life if the Christians that they know can't stand each other? That if the marriages within the church are breaking up at the same rate that they are outside the church, that when we butt heads and get problems, first thing we do is run off and refer back to the prenup and say, okay, how do we divide all this stuff up? And so Paul is saying, you guys, you've got to get together. You have to think the same thing. Focus your attention on the things that are important to you, on the things that matter the most. Be united by your love for God and your love from him. And he said, I want to be a force to do that. But still, Paul is 800 miles away. And so he also then in verse 3 addresses his true companion. And we don't know who the true companion is. It could have been Epaphroditus who was delivering this message to Philippi. Um, it could have been someone who's in leadership at the church there. There are even some uh, people who suggest that Paul was referring to his wife at this point who was in Philippi, but there's no biblical support for that, certainly. But he's addressing a third person who's there in their presence. And he's saying, hey, you need to help with this. I'm begging you, I urge you, true companion, help. Help these women who labored with me in the gospel, and with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. And this is where Paul says, and he makes it clear, I'm not the only one who can do this. I'm doing what I can to pull these ladies together, but you're close to them. This is something that you need to do. It's interesting, the word there that's translated help is a word that its basic root meaning is to grab someone and kidnap them, to seize them, it's often translated. So he's saying, look, you guys are there with these ladies. I've given my two cents worth, but you guys need to grab them and help them, bring them together. Don't settle for yeah, they're just squabbling. They just don't get along. No, you're a family. You're the body of Christ. Take responsibility. When you see these opportunities to unite people who are divided and try to reach out and help them. So often we think, oh, this is just the job of a pastor. If there's two people who aren't getting along, if it gets bad enough, you know, pastors are cheaper than lawyers, so let's see what the pastor can do. But in reality, this is something that everyone in the body should be open to doing, to saying, God, when I see a problem between two brothers or sisters in the Lord, 
will I get involved in that? Now, so often when we try to get involved, we do it by lecturing them, by being mean to them, or, you know, by having some sort of an intervention where we just, you know, pound them. But remember, we shouldn't ever approach other people in a spirit that's anything less than Paul's spirit was, as is demonstrated in verse 1 here of chapter 4. So you realize someone who's going through a tough time, someone who's wandering away from the unity that God wants us to have, what's your responsibility to make them feel loved and accepted, appreciated, joy-inducing? And once you can lay that groundwork, maybe you, like Paul, can go, can I get you two together and let's talk? I think it would be so much more powerful if whenever there were, for instance, marital problems, if there weren't just people in the body who are friends of the people involved who say, can we get together? I want to share a few things. And so often, and I'll give you a shortcut to my counseling, if you're having problems with your kids or if you're having problems with each other or with a friend, it all comes back to feeling appreciated, feeling loved. Feel, seeing the good that God has done in your life so often. Now, sometimes there are other issues that need to be dealt with, but if we would do verse 1, verse 2 would be unnecessary. If we would lay this groundwork. But Paul is saying, you guys take this responsibility. Look for opportunities to bring this kind of peace and joy into people's lives by taking two people who have forgotten what they have in common because they've so magnified what they have that's different. And just remind them to love each other, to come together, to work together, to have that appreciation for all that we have. Why? Hey, we've been serving God together. We work for the same God. We're, we're trying to serve Him. And not only that, as he says, hey, your names are in the book of life. You're, you're citizens of heaven, as he said in the previous chapter. The book of life, that book that... We learn more about it in Revelation than we do anywhere else. It calls it the Lamb's Book of Life. There in Revelation chapter 3, talking to the church at Sardis, Jesus himself says, hey, if you blow it, if you don't get your act together, well, he states it in a more positive way. He says, be faithful and hang in there, and your name won't be blotted out of the Book of Life. Later on throughout Revelation, all the way to chapter 22, it talks about this book of life that it says, your names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. God always knew that you would accept him and he put your name down. The last one there in Revelation 22 is a warning of, hey, if you mess with this book, you take away from it or you add to it, be careful because your name might be taken out of the book of life. Oh, I want to be in the book of life. And the people in the book of life are the ones who will spend eternity together. And so Paul, again, is reminding them, you guys, you're citizens of the same place, heaven. You're going to be together for eternity. How about appreciating that? Appreciate what that means. Pull each other close because of this relationship. Over in Luke, I think it was in chapter 10, Jesus had sent the disciples out. They were learning their little disciple tricks and and discovered that they could cast demons out of people. And they were pretty stoked. Somebody's possessed, and all of a sudden, man, they would pray, and the demons would be removed, and they came back to Jesus, and they're going, Jesus, you're not going to believe this. We're casting demons out. 
And Jesus said, big deal. He said, he said, don't make a big deal about that. Don't rejoice in that. He said, if you want to rejoice about something, rejoice that your names are written in heaven, that your name is recorded there. Boy, nothing can bring us together by realizing we are joint recipients of the grace of God. We have a guaranteed future with him. Our names are written down. No matter what anyone else thinks of us, he thinks of us that he wrote our name down before we were ever named. He wrote our name down from the very beginning because he knew he wanted to spend eternity with us. Now, if your name is there and my name is there, what is it on this earth that's such a big deal that we can't get along? How could that be possible? And it's as we discover that connection that we have with heaven. It's then that we start to learn to do what he has been telling us all along to do, to live our lives in harmony, in harmony, in unity, appreciating each other, encouraging each other, loving each other, putting others' needs above our own because we're all a part of heaven, really. This world is going to fade away. It'll be destroyed. One day it'll be blown up. But there's a world that God promises called heaven where we will live forever with him. And he goes, get a grip on that. Understand that. And again, he does it in the context of saying, don't think you can help others until you help them understand how loved they are, how special they are. But if you can convince them of that, then you're able to grab them and make a difference in their lives in the areas where they need help the most. So reach out to others. Take that responsibility. It's not everyone's responsibility in every case, but God is calling individuals, special companions, as Paul says, who could be that force in other people's lives to say, you guys both know how much I love you. Can we get together? and talk about the things that are alienating you from your loved ones, alienating you from other members of the body of Christ, that is a part of the responsibility of being a citizen of heaven. And it's a beautiful opportunity. And imagine when you get to heaven, if you see people there who you remember, man, remember you guys used to hate each other. And I thought it was all over. You were gonna. You never wanted to see each other again. You're ready to leave the church. You're ready to leave your marriage. You're ready to leave whatever, leave the faith. But remember when we sat down that time and God ministered to you His love, made you feel accepted, and you decided to get back in there and and try to unite together with God's people. And now here we are. Wow, I feel like you're a trophy. I feel like. You're a reason for me to be happy. It's never hopeless. It can look dark because this life is difficult. But it's so important that we be used by God to remind people that it ain't over till it's over. That citizens of heaven, people whose names are in the book of life, ought to be able to get along. If we don't get along, then people are going to blame us for not believing in God. Again, Jesus said, if they see that they are one, then they'll know who I am. That's important. It's hugely important for people to know who Jesus is. 
and we can demonstrate that by getting along. But it's almost never that you and another person can work out your differences. You usually need somebody else. And again, not saying a professional counselor or a pastor, sometimes it's just somebody who will give you an objective perspective, bounce some ideas off of them and see what they have to say. That should be a normal part of our lives. But it takes real love to take that risk, to stick your nose into someone else's business. That's what we're called to do. We're citizens of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we are truly grateful that you stuck your nose into our business. We were going to hell until you got involved. And your kindness brought us to repentance. God, I pray that we will represent you in such a way that everywhere we go, we will just ooze your kindness and your love that we will truly appreciate people as you do. And we'll let them know that. And then that on occasion, when we need to, we would be able to reach out to two people and draw them together, to reach out to families, to friends or even enemies, to churches and other churches, to come together around the most common and basic element in our eternity, our names being written in the book of life. Lord, we are sorry. You've done so much to make us feel special and loved and appreciated and joyful. And we ignore you a lot of times. Help us to notice, to be transformed by what you did for us on the cross as you gave your life for us. Help us to lay our lives down knowing that resurrection will always follow. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.